Hello and welcome to Inside Oxford Science, a podcast from the University of Oxford looking at some of the cutting-edge science happening here in Oxford and also around the world. Uh, my name is Marcus de Sotoy, I'm the Simoni Professor for the Public Understanding of Science here in Oxford and I'm also a Professor of Mathematics. And my other guests in the pod, if they'd like to introduce themselves. I'm uh, Fran Ashcroft, I'm a physiologist with an interest in diabetes. I'm John Wood. I'm a press officer at the University of Oxford, um, largely covering some of the medical sciences research going on here. I'm Pedro Ferreira. I'm a cosmologist working here at Oxford on the early universe. I'm Tristram White, a zoologist working on pheromones. And Pedro, we're going to start with you this week um, and look at the early universe and talk about, I mean, early is about time. So how do we actually talk about time when we're going back to the early universe? Well, so it's, it's, is there a beginning? It's very interesting because it's the kind of question that you're asked when you're giving a talk about the Big Bang. You know, you talk yeah. about the universe. What happened before the Big Bang? Exactly. The universe was expanding. You wind back the clock. There was this initial point where everything went bang. That was a derogatory expression that Fred Hoyle um, uh, gave for something that he didn't find very believable. And then people will ask you, what happened before the Big Bang? And, you, well, used, people used to ask you what happened, what happened before the Big Bang, and you had to stand on your head to try and explain, well, there was nothing before the Big Bang, because there was nothing before the Big Bang. You know, space-time, the universe is time and space. And um, time began when space began, and there was no time before time. I mean, there, there, relativity says that funny things happen to time when you sort of get very small or very fast. I mean, could you explain just a little bit about, um, I think most people's perception of time is that, you know, it goes on like a river. Exactly. <laughs> people, have a, people have this perception of time as, as kind of as supreme, this very platonic um, notion that time is the thing on which we build everything. And very absolute. And very absolute, exactly. And... From, the, from, from Einstein, we, we, we learned that actually space and time are this thing, this malleable thing. They're, first of all, they're intertwined. You know, you can kind of shift time. You can rotate between time and space. And you can dent it. You can bend it. You can stretch time. You can compress it. And you can cut it. So uh, when we talk about the universe, we're, we're talking about this, this beast, this, this a mathematician would call it a manifold, you, this, this surface. This yeah, four bring it on. <laughs> I like manifolds. <laughs> this four-dimensional surface which has three, co three space coordinates and one time coordinate. And the universe beginning means that everything began. And uh, so, as you said, it's, it's very anti-intuitive anti if, we, if we start, if you talk about outside the universe, we're talking outside of space and time where there's nothing. We don't use these, these, um, these labels to, to, to describe what's outside because there's nothing outside. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose one of the things I always thought was very cute about relativity is, I mean, I have two twin daughters, and um, this idea that I could send one of my twin daughters off on a spaceship, you know, near the speed of light, and she'd travel around, come back a year later, yes. and find that her twin was the age of her grandmother. Yeah, uh, no, I mean, no, so no. That, that is just totally peculiar. It's well, very peculiar, and there, there are a lot of... I mean, there are a lot of examples of odd things like that. Like if you move fast, things, if you look at something which is moving, it'll shrink. Uh, there are a lot of, of, of very interesting effects, relativistic effects. And these are not just theoretical. I mean, people have actually they put actually, clocks yeah, on... Um, people put clocks on planes flying around the, 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 the Earth they, in, in particle accelerators where you can actually um, make things move incredibly fast near the speed of light. You see these effects. But the interesting thing about, about time is, you know... Years ago, people, you, I would give a talk about the Big Bang, and people ask, what happened before the Big Bang? And I'd have to say, there was nothing before the Big Bang. And there would be this slightly unsatisfying toing and froing about what happened, because it's very mathematical, a very mathematical concept. 
But what's interesting is over the last 10 years, people have started to consider that there may have been something before the Big Bang. And I would say, well, actually, it goes back to the 1930s. There was someone called Tolman who said that maybe the universe is undergoing cycles. He called it the Phoenix universe, that the universe would expand and then recollapse, then expand and recollapse. And in each expansion, it would generate more entropy. It would get larger and larger. And um, basically, the universe was et eternal, undergoing these cycles. So this was always around. This, this theory of the universe was always around. But people didn't like it very much because they don't like the fact that it kind of collapses and it could all get scrunched up and shatter. More recently, in this very interesting theory which we could talk about called string theory, people have started talking, uh, considering that there was a pre-Big Bang, that the universe was infinitely big, that it underwent a collapse, and then it underwent this transition at the very early times when it was very dense, where quantum mechanics mixes with, with uh, Einstein's theory of relativity, where it, it all becomes a mess and we don't know the laws of physics, and the universe re-emerges and is expanding again. So it goes through this haze, this physical haze that we don't know what's going on. So what happens at the limits? Why does it stop expanding, for example, and suddenly start to collapse in on itself? So in, in this, in the, the 1930s version, it was basically because the, the, there's enough state, think of the universe as expanding, full of stuff, right? The universe is expanding. As it gets bigger and bigger, there's all this stuff in it which is tugging, pulling it back. It's gravity, right? Gravity, things tend to attract. If there's enough stuff, it'll stop the expansion of the universe and it'll turn it round and make it collapse. So it's just the pull of gravity that makes it stop expanding. Well, that's all very well, but when it's actually got all the bodies closer together, the gravity should be stronger. It so should. why doesn't it actually Very good question. Earlier? Think of a ball. Think of a ball, and if you throw the ball up, first of all, it'll go up a bit until it gets to maximum height, and then it'll fall. So it's only if you stop it, if you start it off completely static, will it start collapsing. Ah, so what you're saying is it starts with enough force and momentum that it... Exactly. It. it starts with enough momentum for it to expand and the pull of gravity will slow it down. Right. But the interesting thing is, you know, so people now talk about there was a time before time, you know, that, uh, and that there are various variants. There's, you know, as I said, s string theory suggests that the universe started off very big and started collapsing. There's a, an interesting theory now that we live in not a four dimensional universe, but in a five dimensional universe. And our universe, where we live, is just four dimensional. And it's like a slice of this bigger universe. And it's just floating around, colliding with other universes which have four dimensions. And these collisions are like big bangs. And this happens again and again and again. So it's all pretty esoteric stuff. Can we see the stars slowing down? We know the stars are moving away from us. So can you actually measure the speed at which they're moving away and show that that is declining? Because well, it should be in your, in your theory. Well, it, it, well, it's very interesting. So, you know, it's what Woody Allen said, that Brooklyn isn't expanding. But so locally, the, for, for the local force of gravity is sufficient that it's keeping things more or less as we know it. But if you break out of our local gravity and look sufficiently far away, you, you won't see individual stars uh, expanding or moving away, but what you'll see is you'll see galaxies are moving away from yeah. us, and that's been beautifully measured. I mean, it's you know, it's one of the great success stories in cosmology. But is the rate slowing down? Aha, well. I thought it was the opposite. I thought there was a, an acceleration. <laughs> Until <there>. about <laughs> 11, eight, ten years ago, you know, we thought that things would be slowing down because of the pull of gravity, and what we're actually seeing is that things are speeding up, uh, very strangely. And the consequences of that are very odd. You know, it may be that there's something just pushing the universe apart. There's something repulsive that just pushes the universe apart. I mean, there are other possibilities, but yes, there is this odd fact. 
But uh, I'm interested to come back to this idea of time yes. and what's happening, because you know, obviously relativistic effects and quantum effects are all concentrated at the Big Bang. Yes. So that's when you get interesting things happening. Singularity, yes. you know, that's the singularity which kicks things yes. off. So uh, do we understand, re I mean, people talk about you know, a few seconds after the Big Bang. But what about from Big Bang, you know, the, the, the time zero? Yes. I guess. That's I mean, do we understand what's happening? I'd always thought that you really couldn't talk about time at that, you know, that it's you know, starting to stretch out and it's just becoming infinitely I think that's exactly singular. the problem. The problem is we don't know what are the physical laws at those very early inst instances near the Big Bang. So we, you know, when we say there's a Big Bang, we're extrapolating backwards the laws that we know. And from that, we, 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 we deduce that there's a, there was an initial point, an initial singularity. And in fact, Hawking and Penrose, Stephen Hawking and Roger Penrose, their first big result were the singularity theorems, where they proved that if the universe is like it is now, and obeys these rules, there must have been a beginning. But if these laws, we don't have the right laws, we don't know what happened. So, for example, yet another possibility is that the fabric of space and time is not this smooth thing that we keep, we talk about. It's it's like this patchwork of rings or loops or you know it's it's like a rug. And the moment when you start um, honing down, when you start looking at the very microscopic nature of space and time, it you know the laws are very different, and it doesn't make sense to talk about singularities or points because it's just rough. There's a kind of a roughness to it. There's a granularity to it. So how, how do you distinguish between all these theories? How do you, uh, good point. So, first of all, it's almost impossible, right? So, the, you know, the, the, the point in all this is, on the one hand, you would like to have some kind of mathematical self-consistency. You know, it's really important that things make sense, that, it, you know, it's, it's, these can't be crank theories. These can't be that, you know, that letter that you receive in the post, which is a scribble and a drawing. No, it's got to be well-structured. But as important, it's got, to, it's got to have observations. You've got to test them. So what kind of data do you get? All right, so the, the th way to look at what's happening here is to look as far back in time as possible. And the way to look as far back in time uh, uh, as possible is, is to look at something called gravita gravitational radiation, ripples in space-time. You know, if you knock space and time, it'll shimmer, and it'll send out waves. And it, these waves are very weakly interacting. So if something happened at very early times, these waves would have, would have basically propagated since that time until now. So if we could measure those waves, if we could actually look at those waves, study their properties, it would be a way of peering back into the initial singularity or before. Can we do that? Um, well, uh, there, there, there are experiments being built which are looking for these, and they're, they're, they're being flown from this year or, or, or deployed this year. So over the next five years, we'll be able to look for these waves on very large scales. Um, there's an experiment called LIGO, which is running to measure small-scale gravitational waves. And it might pick up some little bit of, of very, very early universe um, gravity waves. And there's a possibility of flying a satellite called LISA, which might be able to do that. So, so they all have nice names. They all have nice names, yeah, yeah. But basically, I, you know, I think gravity waves and the study of gravity waves is really one of the topics in physics and cosmology of the future because it's the way of looking really far back in time. And those make powerful predictions of what we ought to find if they're, they tr make, if they're true. I'll tell you the problem is they make predictions but they're not powerful enough and what I mean by that is first of all the signal isn't strong enough it's they're typically very weak signals but also the signals aren't distinct enough. So, you know, if you, you measure gravity waves, it's going to be, we're going to be able to rule out classes of theories, but it's going to be, at the moment, I think more work has to be done to pin down exactly which theories um, are the right ones. So.
I think a lot of people have this idea when, when I talk about four dimensions, they say, oh, yeah, that time is the fourth dimension. Yes. And you, you alluded to that a little bit earlier, um, that time and space in relativity, that, that, that time has a kind of spatial feel to it, a dimension that you can sort of... Uh, could you perhaps expand a little bit by what people mean when they say time is the fourth dimension? And, well, uh, it's very interesting. Um, you know, time is the fourth dimension. So when you when you for a physicist, then we must point this out because for me it isn't necessary. You know, it can be. Uh, <laughs> I mean, a fourth dimension, fifth dimension, keep track of other things for me. But, yes, uh, yes. Um, um, well, it's interesting because time is the fourth dimension. So, <laughs> and that's your answer. Okay. <laughs> time is you. Okay, there are two things. First of all, when you when you shift when you when you do experiments and you're at rest, for example, you're measuring things, you're doing tabletop experiments, and you, you, know, you can measure things, you can measure the state of motion of something, you can measure how you, the, the, the frequency of light that's being emitted, you can measure all these different things that you measure in a lab with, with apparatus. And then you do the same experiments on a, on a moving reference frame, you'll find that there will be differences. There will be difference in, in, differences in, in, in the measurements. Now, there are things which are basically constant. There are things that don't change, like the speed of light. But there are other things like lengths and, and periods of clocks which will change. And you basically, what you find is that you're shifting things which were in the spatial domain into the time domain. So in that sense, it becomes the fourth, the fourth dimension. However, we have to be careful because time is different from space. And there's this thing that mathematicians know and some physicists know, which is when you add, you know, for example, if you want to find the amount, the distance between two events in space and time, uh, for example, something happens here and something happens over there at another time. There's a way of doing that. You basically you, you, you add the separation in time and the separation in space, but you don't add them in the same way. You add the separation in time with the separation in space with a minus sign. So there's a minus, uh, there's this, this minus sign difference between time and space. And that's crucial. That's crucial because if there wasn't this minus sign, there, there, there wasn't this minus sign, things wouldn't evolve. Basically, this would just be this amorphous mass of structures, but there wouldn't be evolution. There wouldn't be there wouldn't be a here and now, and there wouldn't be a, a then. You couldn't evolve. There wouldn't be no dynamic laws. I mean, I think for me, with um, a very basic background in physics, what you're saying is absolutely extraordinary. That these early times and before time, that the laws of physics aren't how we understand them now. They get hazy. They may be they may be even wrong. Mm. Maybe even having to throw them out. Um, I mean, because in, in school we learn about Newton's laws, classical stuff, and then perhaps if we go on a bit we learn about quantum stuff that works at really small atomic scales. And then if you go on further you get to Einstein, sort of universe, speed of light, and the, they're all different. So what we're saying at, at these hazy times, less than a second after the Big Bang, after the singularity, none of these are quite sufficient. No. They all mix and somehow we have to work out ways of looking at the far reaches of the universe to work out what actually are the laws. Our laws, which were the tools for understanding everything that happens, are kind of different. No, that, that is, I mean, but the, as, I mean, as you rightly described, there's this progression, right? We, we knew, you know, by the time of Newton, we knew the here and, and now, and as we, as we build out, you know, we introduce Einstein. Maybe Einstein isn't totally correct at very early times. Maybe quantum mechanics isn't totally correct at very early times. I mean, one of our local people, Roger Penrose, has some very interesting ideas about what happens. He talks about a pre-eons, the universe undergoes eons, and the, the, the transition between eons, between, you know, uh, uh, the, the, 
the here and now that our universe our current eon universe and that the the eon before that that he talks about the haze we really don't know i mean there there's he thinks the universe is basically space time and light light has this very interesting property and it doesn't really react doesn't really respond to clocks and rulers and so it's just this phase it's just this fuzz this this belt of unknowingness so well, unless we take our podcast onto a spaceship and travel at the speed of light, I'm afraid that's as much time as we have for time. Um, and we're going to turn to Alzheimer's, um, a very different uh, sort of science. Um, and John, you're going to explain a little bit about uh, new work being done here in Oxford about Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's we usually associate with um, old people and brains going wrong, but this is about young people. I Absolutely, that's right. I think this is really quite exciting new research. Um, it's... They've, they've taken brain scanning uh, and wanting to look at Alzheimer's, but rather than look at middle-aged people or older people that may be already showing some mild cognitive impairment, they've looked at young people aged um, between 20 and 35. And so why have they done that? I mean, uh, Alzheimer's, is, is it, it's a genetic disorder? Or perhaps you could explain, you know, what, what do we know about Alzheimer's? We know a certain amount about Alzheimer's, uh, and, and certainly... Um, many of us will go on and get it now that uh, life expectancies are reaching what I don't know 80 or something I'm I don't know one or two people around this table will get some form of dementia unfortunately but so we need to go back and look at not only how Alzheimer's arises who's at risk of it what the factors that lead to it we need we need to get all of that understanding but also look at diagnosing it early uh, trying to work out ways of preventing it. These are all the massive challenges we're facing as, as our populations get older. Um, so what res researchers at the University of Oxford have done is they've looked at a gene, one particular gene, that's perhaps the best known risk factor for Alzheimer's. So this is our, our best genetic element that we know of that has some association with getting Alzheimer's. So it's, it's called the ApoE gene. It sits on chromosome 19, uh, and there are three versions of it. So um, you might have uh, an E2 version, an E3 version, or an E4 variant. I have no idea what happened to E1. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a bit unfair. <laughs> um, but um, the E4 version, if you have um, uh, this version of the ApoE gene, um, you may have increased risk of getting Alzheimer's late on. So um, around you know, this is quite a common gene variant. Maybe one in four or one in five people uh, have this version. Um, and if you inherit one copy of it from your parents, you're maybe three or four times more likely uh, to get Alzheimer's or, or some form of dementia. If you have two copies, one from both parents, it may be as much as 10 or 12 times. Um, it's of that order. Um, uh, and there are other things as well. Um, it's associated with other forms of dementia. If you have a severe head injury in later life, you may have a poorer outcome from that. Uh, you may not recover as well, that kind of thing. But, okay, so this is all sounding pretty bad, but this, it's important to remember that this isn't a causative link. So in the general population, maybe 20 or 25% of us have this variant. Among people with Alzheimer's, that rises to maybe 50%. So if you have this variant, you're not definitely going to have problems. It's not as simple as that. Um, so, so what does the gene do? What's, what's the connection? Well, the gene encodes a protein. It's called apolipoprotein E. Um, 
And outside of the brain, it's also produced in the liver and it's involved in taking cholesterol out of the blood, breaking it down. But in the brain, we're a bit unsure uh, about what it does. It seems to be involved in the initial development of, of our neuronal pathways, the way in our brain works, maybe in repair or remoulding of those. So, so making uh, and repairing uh, connections between uh, neurons. So there's great interest in this. So as you say, people have looked at this in older people and um, in Alzheimer's the, the first sort of symptoms you get are, are memory begins to go. You, you might forget a few things and, and eventually it progresses into a really distressing uh, situation which is really a problem for, not only for, for the uh, person with Alzheimer's but really their family and their carers. But, so, it, but you, can you identify then something which is happening in young people? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. So, so yes, that's that's a bit of the background, I guess. So, yeah, with people with this gene in older people, uh, if you have this gene, there are people shown the hippocampus, where the memory functions of the brain is actually smaller. Uh, the brain tends to work to function in slightly different ways. That's regardless of whether you have Alzheimer's or not. So, so this gene, if you have this E4 variant, it's doing something in the brain. We know that much. So for the first time, these researchers have gone and looked at younger people. What's happening earlier, before there are any symptoms, before anything happens? And actually, they've done brain scans. They put people in an MRI machine. They did scans when they were doing nothing, just resting there, just lying there. Uh, and they, they did scans again when they were doing just a simple memory task. You know, they were shown images and asked to, to recall them. Uh, and in both cases, these young people, just between 20 and 35, with this gene variant, their brains were showing some difference in the way they were functioning. They could pinpoint it in both tests. So if I understand correctly, the structure of the brain, the size of the brain, is not different in the young people. But what is changing is the functional activity. Absolutely. So they've ruled out any difference in structure. The hippocampus is exactly the same. There's no difference in blood flow or anything. They've ruled out all of those uh, anomalies or anything that might have confused this work. They looked at 18 people with one copy of this gene variant and 18 people without and there was a, a difference in the way they did this memory task when just resting. What happens if they look at people who've got two copies of the gene or have they not done that? I guess that's a, f a future study. Can you explain a little bit about what the differences are? I mean uh, presumably this is actually helping to us, us to understand how the brain works not just uh, Alzheimer's. Um, I mean, I, th I think that's uh, talking to them. This is led by uh, Dr. Claire Mackay in the uh, Centre for Functional Magnetic Re uh, Resonance Imaging uh, of the Brain Centre here, uh, a long title, normally known as the FIMRIB Centre. Uh, but Claire Mackay says the next thing they're going to do is look at the mechanisms, the physiology, the biology of what's going on, trying to work out what's going on here. But the signals that they see in brain scans are fundamentally different in people with this gene variant to those without. That's decades, very striking. Decades. But it's really interesting because what you've told us is that only approximately, you know, it's only you only have a small increase in risk of getting Alzheimer's mm. if you have this uh, gene variant. And yet you're saying that you can already see changes or differences right when you're young. So the key question is what happens to some people that produces Alzheimer's in later life? Well, absolutely, and, and that's... Why is it different? That's the enticing prospect, the excitement about this. Yes, it's a new observation. They've done a high-quality brain scan study, but it tends to open up more questions than they've been able to answer. Um, so it's, it's a small step to getting towards the, uh, the major challenge of in the 
diagnosis and then, then the treatment of dementia. So at the moment people might go to a, their doctor or a memory clinic when they're just beginning to experience those first symptoms uh, of, of, of sort of cognitive impairment, you know, memory's not working as it used to. Um, and only half of those people that go to a doctor will ever develop a real problem, will ever go on to get Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. But how enough do you tell? We've got no way of identifying those individuals that will go on and get Alzheimer's and those that won't. So this, this method, um, that what they've shown basically is this method of putting people in an MRI scanner and actually just doing nothing, their resting state MRI, is sensitive enough, is the best tool we now have to begin to explore this. So this is nowhere near a, a diagnosis technique yet, but it's the, you know, perhaps the most exciting, most in, enticing things we've seen. And this is very new research that has identified this it very is, different yes, brain it's, activity. It's being published in the journal uh, PNAS, Proceedings of the um, National Academy of Sciences of, uh, in the States. Um, so a great journal, um, exciting work, and we'll just have to see where it goes. I mean, what ideally you'd guess you'd do is, having taken these young people and identified a difference, is follow them up. If you ever got the funding or could do this study, I mean, very expensive, huge amounts of computing power, you know, follow them up every five years until they're uh, sort of getting into middle age and, and see what happens. There's lots of other interesting research going on on Alzheimer's, isn't there, in Oxford? The Optima Project, for example, where they have been looking, if I remember correctly, at um, the one of the things they found was that the levels of homocysteine in people with Alzheimer's were higher, I think, than in people who did not have Alzheimer's. Um, so my question is, do the people with the ApoE gene variant also have differences in homocysteine levels and things? I, I think it's a, a very reasonable question. I think that that stu study should probably be done. I mean, David Smith, who has led the Optima project in Oxford for, for about 20 years, and, and, and Gordon Wilcock on the more sort of clinical side have got this amazing cohort, a, a huge number of people that they've been following um, uh, th through development of dementia and, and they've really, it's, it's all about trying to find ways of preventing it the best ways we can because we don't, we don't have great treatments. Existing drugs just treat the symptoms of dementia rather than doing anything about it. So what would be great as people get older and as our populations age is just find ways of of delaying that or preventing it as much as possible. So they've been looking at uh, the sort of pharmacology, the chemical system behind this, and, and certainly people with dementia seem to have higher levels of, of this chemical called homocysteine, which is related to vitamin B in our diet, particularly vitamin B12. So if vitamin B12, you know, if we can keep levels of this high in the population, is what their research is beginning to suggest, this might be one way of preventing uh, dementia levels across populations. Um, it, it, it seems to be pretty promising. I mean, if you if you have it, so it's it's related to dose. So if you have more B12, you seem to have less risk of dementia. So that suggests a causative link. It's not just an observation. More B12 means less risk of Alzheimer's. And they've been looking at foods and, and diet. You know, B12 is in a range of foods, and it seems to be that it's in meat and, and milk and and, and fish also seems to, to have benefits. And it's, people thought about oily fish, you know, there's omega-3 that's added to lots of foods. And actually, they seem to say that any fish is good. So it may not be as, as simple as omega-3 or omega-6 uh, helps here. But milk and, and meat, 
uh, vitamin B and vitamin B compounds seem to be much more available to us in the body from milk. So if you're drinking a couple of glasses of milk a day, uh, you're going to do better than eating lots of, of, of steak. Um, what vegetarians do, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, or, or vegans, I guess. But uh, So interesting things, uh, by the, doing these huge studies, we're beginning to get these lessons that may come out. But certainly just eating a good diet uh, and, and keeping active seems to be the best lessons we have at the moment. There just seem to be very, we're at a stage in science where we can actually, for example, you know, now identify genes which give you a propensity for Alzheimer's, uh, MRI scans, I think, you know, the, the fact that we can now understand what's happening inside the brain is, you know, mean that we can understand uh, science like this uh, so much more clearly. And uh, um, so thank you very much, John, for uh, uh, introducing us to that research happening here in Oxford. And uh, that's all we've got time for. The end of time has occurred for our podcast. Um, so I'd like to thank uh, Tristram, Pedro, John, Fran, and we hope that you can join us again on Inside Oxford Science. <laughs>